You're listening to Absolute AI. Conversations with the humans behind artificial intelligence, where data scientists, ML researchers, startup founders, and enterprise execs talk about cutting-edge innovations and unique challenges posed by this new technological frontier. Tune in for interviews with leading experts to anticipate trends before they emerge. Hi, thanks for joining us on Absolute AI, conversations with the humans behind artificial intelligence. I'm your host, Melody Travers, and today I'm speaking with Florin Tufan. Florin is the CEO and co-founder of Solidify, a platform that mimics the human approach to research on companies at massive scale using a combination of artificial intelligence, machine learning, and natural language processing. Before founding Solidify, he was the chief product officer at TME Studios, one of the largest mobile app publishers in Europe. Welcome to Absolute AI, Florin. Thanks for having me, Melody. I'm excited. Me too. So tell me a little bit about yourself and how you entered the world of artificial intelligence. Um, yeah, almost by accident. So I'm a very analytical guy. Um, I always liked data-related stuff. Uh, but whenever when I when I made the switch and and started really working with uh, some heavy AI, I felt like I was a, a bit uh, lied to, like a bit betrayed. My expectations were were so oh. high, and I think media plays a part in this. Uh-huh. And then when when I started actually working with it and trying a bunch of stuff, I was like, "Is this what we're afraid of? That'll take over <laughs> humanity? Is this it?" <laughs> So yeah, what were these ideas that you had that then um, you felt this sense of betrayal? So I, I think what you come in with a preconception that you can just, you can put in AI to do like this incredibly perfect correlating engine, where if you just give it enough examples beforehand, it will just somehow magically know. Um, <laughs> and so, and going into the world, it feels more like, yeah, if you do it like a 10,000 times for every little tiny detail, uh-huh. you might end up in that point. But that's you're already a decade, late, a decade later. You have to change your tech stack by then. <laughs> um, that's yeah, I, I, I find that all the time. And I, too, had that that realization and entered into the world um, from the data side and was astounded that, especially with machine learning, um, that models have to learn much in the way that humans have to learn, right? Going on a walk and pointing out like, oh, that's a tree, that's a squirrel. So now you know what trees and squirrels are. Okay, we need more examples. Okay, you're better at, at identifying those now. And then, of course, with language, which is always evolving, so you started your your education was in marketing. I assume that it was kind of in the analytical side of marketing, um, and then you moved to product and and eventually to data science. So um, just tell just give me a little outline of um, of those moves. Um, so I, I think the the overarching narrative is that I I always like had a thesis. Even growing up, I remember having like wrong thesis, of course, but having thesis on like. What, what can drive change? I think, and mm. at some and and I had like at some point I thought the answer is marketing because it matters so much um, into how successful a product is. And I come from a format uh, from from a former 
uh, communist country. So you, you see a lot of examples of like well-executed technical products or well-executed engineering with no marketing and companies failing mm. with, with an amazing technology behind them. So I wanted to pursue marketing to make sure I understand that part of the world. And then my thesis changed and, and I, I thought like, oh no, it's actually the product guy that has this combination of marketing and technical and that's who actually drives the change. Um, and I, I moved more into tech, so I, I was certain that I want to do something as tech-related as possible because I, I looked at it like being a physicist in the 1930s or 40s <laughs> where you're right exactly where most of the change is happening at the very fundamental level. Um, so I didn't initially start with a preference of what kind of... I just wanted to be close to the the, the, the change and, and uh, sort of where the, the top... 10% smartest people are and top 10% most money accumulates and <laughs> everything changes so fast. And I, I wasn't disappointed with that at all. And as, as you probably, um, uh, probably already uh, have an intuition around, like then my thesis changed to like, oh no, it's that plus a lot of data. They're like mm -hmm. that's what drives real change right now. So um, let's get into the problem that you and your co-founder identified that led you to start your own business. Um, what, what was that problem and what was the unique approach that you guys developed to solving it? So funny enough, we started with the wrong thesis again. <laughs> <laughs> um, we wanted to build a tool that uses data to drive better sales. Um, for companies that work with small and medium businesses. And our assumption was that we will find very good sources for uh, the, the bulk of the data or uh, what, what we assumed is very commoditized, like data on the company, what the company does, where it's located, things you can use. And then our thesis was that we can add uh, real-time insights if we just figure out like, okay, here's a hotel opening a second location. And that becomes like a sales insight to a, a bunch of industries. Mm -hmm. With the assumption that we have step zero already figured out, like it's commoditized. We just said like, okay, we sign a contract, like get an API and, and start working on what the real problem is. Mm -hmm. We ended up building this tool where we did a decent job at the second part, but everybody was, was saying like, this is a nice concept, but your basic data like is really bad. <laughs> I just say this restaurant is a hotel and the other way around. And you, you tell me this company is based in the Netherlands. It's not no longer active and so on. And we started looking into a lot of examples and they were really puzzling. And I think in a couple of months, we realized that we started with the wrong assumption. Um, and then we had a second wrong assumption that we said, okay, then, okay, this AI thing that we've been reading a lot about seems very potent in, in at processing text. So the, the way to figure out like, okay, this is probably a restaurant or probably a hotel. If we just do like some very basic text processing, we should be able to tell the difference. Mm -hmm. um, and we ended up going down a rabbit hole that we're, we're still going on today <laughs> uh, because it turns out it's not that easy. <laughs> <laughs> so so if i'm understanding correctly the the first thing you guys were doing is um scraping the internet for um information about uh different companies and so you were trying to create kind of an automated search system right that that updated regularly um but yeah unfortunately with everything on the internet it's not 
packed into these nice little forms and boxes and labels and everything like that. So um, talk to me about the so uh, that move to developing um, NLP. Where did you guys start? How are you training your your models and um, how are you stacking them to accomplish your objectives? So in in uh, the first few months we were it was like disappointment after disappointment because we were like wrong assumption after wrong assumption we thought uh, like looking into a lot of the details we thought like okay then there there has to be a lot of people that do have the same problem that we do that start with the wrong assumption and then their tool doesn't work or their feature doesn't work because of the wrong underlying data mm-hmm. um, behind it and we figure out that we can use uh, some some modern NLP technologies to for example if you if you go on a company's website and identify the footer um, identifying that there's at least that there's an address or not in the footer should be easy um, mm-hmm. it sometimes it sometimes isn't um, and then isolating that address and being able to process it um, and ending up with like a structured data at the other end mm-hmm. should be doable if you, if you put multiple um, technologies one on top of the other. Yeah. Um, and it sort of is, it sort of isn't. It's not as easy as we thought. Um, but it, and w- one of the early major challenges was that, um, as you mentioned, like the the web is actually extremely unstructured, despite mm-hmm. lots of efforts to make it more structured and more, more machine readable. Mm-hmm. Um, and so all the major NLP technologies are trained, or lang- models that understand the language are trained with like Wikipedia data and data from books, um, mm-hmm. or data from news articles, which are inherently very very well structured. Mm-hmm. So what you have to do at the beginning, if you want to change the format of the the, the things that you want to process, is to basically do a lot of the work in advance, hoping it will work at some mm-hmm. point, as you as you hope it will. Um, and fast forward three years later, uh, we now so describing the the process at a very high level, um, we brute force uh, hundreds of billions of web pages. Um, we don't know much, so at first we don't go for like specific sources or anything. We just want to gather as much information as possible hmm. um, with the post-processing helping us like realizing what we ended up scraping and what we didn't. Hmm. Uh, apart from, of course, like respecting robust.txt and websites don't, that don't want to be crawled. Mm-hmm. Um, but then it becomes a lot of work, like as you mentioned in, in the example with uh, show, showing to a, uh, an ML model, uh, showing a tree and, and, and teaching it what a tree is. Um, we, we try to take the same approach uh, that, a, that a human has when they visit the internet is sort of like have to figure out on what website you are and then on what page and on, then on what section. And then for each paragraph or snippet of information, you have to figure out like what's there. At mm-hmm. first, at a very high level, so I think, okay, I think here's the contact information, or I think here's where they describe if they have that that uh, facility that I'm looking for. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then to go more and more in depth and, and try to sort of start with a blurry image and then try to correct it pixel by pixel. So how it works in, in, um, in practice is that we first figure out like on what page we are and then the section and group it into different, um, in, into different uh, parts. And then 
we deploy, we think, okay, here's some information that is related to the products made by this company. Mm-hmm. So we deploy a number of models that try and and uh, uh, and treat it as a, a like a product snippet. Okay. And sometimes it is, sometimes it's not. Uh, now we call this uh, the the gathering candidates phase. Okay. Um, you cannot have like a one-step process where where you say, okay, I'll I'll just do this thing really well, and then I'll end up with like extremely clean data on the other end. Uh-huh. At first, you try to say you try to gather as much data as possible with enough metadata so to know to be able to track your steps, and then do a lot of processing afterwards, which is things like you translate different snippets of text or you tokenize different snippets of text. You use models that know synonyms. You try to um, in a lot of ways, you try to you in the post-processing phase. You try to uh, you have like this square, uh, the square shape, and you try to put things and see if they go through. Like, okay, I mm-hmm. think this is a product description. Does it look like a product description from these three perspectives? And a lot of the things that we do, because we start with this very chaotic information that we know nothing about, um, we. We use multiple models and none is a source of truth, but they all give like opinions. And then based on the aggregated big data analysis, mm-hmm. you, you look at an element that has these um, opinion givers or machine learning models that say, okay, from this perspective, it's 0.8 uh, accurate from the perspective of how the sentence looks, it looks more like this. Mm-hmm. And then you end up with more like a, like a, like a mathematical equation Mm-hmm. Uh, to decide if it's above a certain threshold of accuracy or not. Okay, so um, for an example that that one of my colleagues gave, um, we were doing a project on on helping a financial company figure out, you know, how uh, where people were spending money, right? So so that's a feature on all of our bank accounts and credit cards now. You know, they say you've spent this much on your household, this much on shopping, this much. Um, and one of the things that they talked about was um, trying to figure out the difference between somebody going to a gas station and buying some food and buying gas, because those are different categories. And so, so what you're saying is that you would have two different models and they'd say, okay, well, um, it's the same name, but um, since this person spent $30, I'm pretty sure, I'm like 70% sure that this is a gas purchase instead of like, you know, buying a pack of gum or something. So, and then the, the, the one that, that figures out if it's a, um, a convenience store purchase, they would say, yeah, you know, based on, based on that amount, I, I too think that it's a low, (laughs) low chance, um, that, that, it was actually spent here, so it's probably gas. And so they kind of talk to each other and, and decide, is that, uh, is that kind of what you're talking about? Yes, that's I, I think it's a hundred percent on the right track. So I okay. think what we're we're presenting with sort of the promise that you give a transaction to an ML model and it just knows. Uh-huh. And then in real life you have to like take into consideration the hour of the transaction, the amount of the transaction, the exact specific place. You look at the behavior of other people. Do other people typically go and spend a lot of money there in the morning and not mm-hmm. so much in the afternoon? And then you look at previous spending habits, because if you see this person that has never use the gas station in the past three months and now they're going to a gas station they're probably going there to like buy a bottle of water mm-hmm. unless it's just been covid and nobody's left the house for a while 
<laughs> well, then you have the blessing of uh, of aggregating data in in huge numbers, and maybe you can put like seventy percent of that expense into there. Uh, you go, bucket A. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> so um, there's sort of this paradox in our field um, that. On the one hand, uh, you said it yourself, uh, the more data you have, the better. Um, but then on the other hand, 90% uh, of data is considered dark data. So it's it hasn't been analyzed or leveraged uh, to benefit a business or um, you know whatever the goals are at all. And, and so this, when it becomes sort of dark data, it becomes a liability because it's associated with high energy costs and security risks. So um, do you think that there is such a thing as too much data? And if so, how do we how do we become more selective um, about the data we store and how we use models to generate insights from that data? So I would annotate the sentence to say, uh, if uh, the more data, the better, provided that you know the context in which the data was created, mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. provided that you have some sort of way to measure its 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 at least to estimate its uh, probability to be true. Okay, how would you define? Uh, I don't want to get too philosophical, but how how would you define true? <laughs> Uh, well, that's a question we struggle with every single day. Um, I, I think uh, what what you want to... So I, I, I think there are two answers to this question. One, you get to, you, you want to get to the closest po possible uh, or to uh, as close as possible to the mindset of a reporter where you just you're, you're documenting as opposed to hmm. stating opinions. Okay. Um, and I would say, that is true, not like in the philosophical sense of what's the true nature of reality, but like, right. okay, on this piece of paper, this is what's written. Okay. Uh -huh. it, I don't know if that's the right thing that was written, uh, but as long as I have some context, like who and when wrote it and what the paper is, um, then maybe I can do something with it. Mm -hmm. um, I, I see that a lot of, back to your uh, your initial uh, statement, I, I think that I, I see a lot of... Um, like let's throw a lot of data into models and see what sticks types of approaches. I'm not a fan, hmm. um, especially in like risk modeling or trying to find insights, like who's the best customer pr predicting next best action. Mm -hmm. um, I, I, I'm not a big fan uh, because I, I think you, you, you uh, unless you have like incredible huge sample sizes you you run into a lot more risks than the pot the potential uh, upside when when trying that approach I, I think there are I simply put as long as you have a very clear objective as to what you're trying to achieve I think it's it's uh, common sense that there are lots of things that will make sense or they mm -hmm. won't make sense in in trying to co the, the weather doesn't correlate with everything <laughs> Right. Okay. It, correlate, it probably correlates with a lot more things than we realize, but it definitely doesn't correlate with everything. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that makes sense. Um, so, what are what are some of the critical components uh, to consider when you're building dynamic models? Oh, um, so. One thing that we as a team, we learned the hard way, and I, I still see a, a lot of teams um, making the same mistake that we did for a long time, 
Um, because I, I think in, in like data practices and AI practices, I think we're still in like the infancy. We're mm-hmm. trying to define the best practices. And so one of the big mistakes that we, we did for, for a long time was having this wishful thinking approach where you, you don't have like the, the very, a very clear methodology of what you expect and how you're going to test it at the end of like a development cycle, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, so of course you have it to some extent, but the, being extremely specific as to what you expect uh, a piece of technology to do, um, that that I think is make or break in in every sort of endeavor. What that allows you to do um, is to build a good testing framework over time, and and oftentimes at least um, in the use cases that we've become familiar with. But I, I expect in general. Um, it's really hard to find objective sources of truth, right? Like yeah. even you'd, you'd expect, for example, that um, with all the, the satellite data and satellite imagery, like the location problem to be solved, like it's very clear what's there and you know what to expect. So therefore, you know what to optimize and t- test against. Mm-hmm. Um, but in reality, there are lots of nuances. Um, and so the developing... So making sure you know what to expect and then developing a good testing framework um, allows you to do or, or to iterate when when the the, the observable universe changes hmm. and to also know at a high level what you expect. And then you can put a human in the loop to review aberrations or what whatever that is not consistent with what you expected. And especially with, with language. Um, because we do a lot of text processing in a lot of ways. And uh, as you imagine, you, like we've been uh, pre and post COVID, a lot of like new nuances have appeared. Um, pe- uh, companies have, invest- uh, has inve- have invented new business models. Mm-hmm. Uh, they've invented new niches. We see um, a lot of blockchain related type companies like invented, inventing niches from the ground up. We see green energy type of companies inventing niches from the ground up. Um, and um, what what we do is we have a good system of testing uh, and then flagging these cases and, and saying, okay, I think there's a new cluster that is starting to take shape uh, and put that into the hands of a human to, to see if it's an error or it's actually something changing significantly. And funny enough, our models did uh, start breaking uh, at the beginning of the, the COVID pandemic, they did start breaking because everybody was now publishing uh, health advice or health measures. Mm-hmm. And wherever we expected the data to be formatted in a specific way, we thought like, oh, okay, now 50% of the companies are doing health-related activities. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> we oh, live in no. a different world now. <laughs> oh, that's a great example. So that's how we learned that lesson. <laughs> Absolute AI is sponsored by Inadata, a leading data engineering company. From startups to enterprise, Inadata delivers ground truth training data and customized AI services and platforms at scale. Learn more at Inadata.com. So, Florin, can you give me some examples of how you and your team have leveraged AI and ML to solve some real world business problems? So actually, at the the beginning of the the whole lockdown situation, uh, we we started panicking like everyone else, um, and 
then we realize that if we make any like very big moves, uh, it might like we don't really understand the situation we're going through. So we should just keep doing what we're doing and then wait for for us to understand the situation better and for everyone to understand the situation better. And so we took like a week um, where we said, let's work on something that can help us feel better until until mm-hmm. we understand what's happening better. Um, and we we built in in uh, in about a week. We built like this free resource that allows you to search for medical suppliers. It was a big crisis at that point, and and yeah. it a lot of the the crisis was a data crisis. Or of course, you, I see data problems everywhere. <laughs> um, no, but a lot like you have a database of suppliers. Fifty have been enough so far, and now you need like five hundred. And you realize that all the data you have is outdated, and you have no like real time monitoring of it, um, and then it becomes a supply chain problem. Mm-hmm. So we built this uh, this engine. We were only doing uh, basic company information at that point, um, mm-hmm. but we built like this these heuristics where we used. Uh, some basic NLP on the 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 pro on the page type or on the page title to go on the supplier's website. We knew they were medical suppliers, um, and and to sort of index uh, product type of information, but at a very raw level. Um, and we made this available as a search engine, so you could go and say, "I'm looking for this kind of mask," and then it would refresh every couple of days. Uh, to, mm. to reflect new information or suppliers publishing uh, the fact that they've received new uh, a new shipment or or things like that, and it, it ended up like being very useful for the for the next three months. It it got wow. uh, uh, promoted in a bunch of press articles, so we were seeing quite impressive amounts of traffic. And the funny thing is, um, we had no no idea of this back then uh but now actually procurement and supply chain is one of our major use cases um because the some of the problems that were reflected and happened then they are still active now now the whole international context have gotten even more complicated and supply chain problems piling up um data is actually a great way to do it so now we actually go and and extract product level information um in in this closing this loop that uh, it was seemingly unrelated completely wow that's so cool what a great story of of doing something um you know kind of altruistic and trying to help and then it pivots you guys in another direction that ends up being really great so during the first iteration of this were you guys focused um, particularly in Romania or Eastern Europe, or was this um, broadly across the world? Did you focus on a particular language or how did you guys start navigating that? Uh, so we always uh, we always seen uh, the solution in the data as uh, international from, from day one. We didn't start with okay. like a region. We did start with English, uh, English websites or English resources. Okay. Um, but then it started becoming a problem that you kind of need to know the language or you kind of need to know the language to know the language. Yeah. <laughs> so even if you're focused on like English speaking, you might uh, accidentally uh, start analyzing resources in other languages and then you need to know the language to know the language. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I think uh, two or three years ago, uh, there was this team at Facebook that took a Google project. Uh, the project is, was initially called BERT, 
if I'm not mistaken, at Google. And then this Facebook team uh, took it and made it multilingual, uh, mm. called it uh, Roberta, uh, and they released it as open source. And that was a lifesaver for us. Um, wow. Because it allowed us to like build or replicate what we what we've done in English and make it multilingual with um, or not not so not so huge processing implications, um, mm-hmm. and then to to deal with this or to deal with the overhead of having to label a lot of a lot of things, we've built this this engine that helps us translate entities. Um, and for example, if you need like a German. Uh, like you need to train like a data set in, in German. Uh, th- we have this component that goes and, and translates uh, training data sets for each model because the, the, the technology may be multilingual, but then there's, a, there's some added benefit in terms of accuracy if you also show it examples in the language that uh, you're, you're trying to work with. So now we have uh, models working in, in more than 20 languages and it takes us about, uh, about two weeks to, uh, tra- to add a new one. Um, wow. But at this point, so with with the most uh, popular twenty languages, you have like one uh, Arabic language, and the delta in accuracy with other Arabic languages is only one percent. Because of the so the the way that the language works, the way the sentences are structured, is not that different. Yeah, that's that's super interesting. Um, uh, I was just talking to a friend about. Um who was in Oman uh, learning Arabic and then went to Egypt. And she said the first uh, the first few weeks she was there, she felt like she didn't know any Arabic at all. Yeah. <laughs> but of course, that's, you know, accented and not written. So right. that's that's a little different. Um, yeah. W- one interesting challenge, though, that we, we have, and that I think it's more similar to your, your friend having uh, like a phonetical challenge on mm-hmm. top of the language channel, uh, challenge, uh, we actually have a problem. So people always ask us about uh, data from like China or uh, uh, other other Asian countries where suppliers, uh, uh, where a lot of suppliers are located, but the data is really scarce. And they ask us like, do you have any problem processing Chinese? And in, in reality, we don't. Uh, but mm-hmm. there there's, just like in your example, there's an additional challenge of, that's a cultural one. So right. you have a lot of the, the Chinese information or the, the information in China is much more visual than it is written. So we use a lot of text and just uh, use some images or video on top or uh, whereas you will go and see like this company with 10,000 people and their website is just images and no text <laughs> whatsoever. Um, and so, yeah, the, the adapting to that is an ongoing challenge uh, and it's not not a language one. Um, speaking of a uh, sort of non-language, or or maybe language has to do with this, but there's some cultural aspects to this as well. But um, I remember you describing your team as a team of data scientists, and your clients are data scientists. Um, but of course, uh, I'm sure you guys, you know, can speak the same language. But uh, what are some of the challenges that you have when trying to communicate with non-technical decision makers um, and what do you wish they already knew? Uh, so I, I wish uh, the the myth of AI uh, was was more was busted at a li- at larger scale <laughs> okay <laughs> so we meet we meet 
a lot of uh, like business leaders that uh, are are just like we were two or three years ago will like believing that AI can sort of like read your mind. Mm. Uh, so for example, we have this component that is extremely helpful if you're if you're building any sort of search function mm-hmm. uh, that looks for tags related to the business activity and adds it to the company. So if you have a search that's useful, in mm-hmm. almost regardless of what you're trying to achieve with your search. Um, and so f- when going through samples and discussing with clients, it's you get, you uh, often like you get to a point where you show them like an example and you show it to three people and say, do you agree that this tag needs to be there? And you get like two no's and one yes, and you show a different example, you get two yes and one no, and it's, uh, you have to walk them through methodologies and, and expectations at a very early stage and then explain what's possible, which is actually excitingly, it's it's a lot, like a lot is possible today, almost everything. It has a much larger overhead. It's much harder than you'd expect, but a lot is possible. Hmm. Uh, but but I think uh, there's this, expect, this expectation, if I had a magic wand, uh, yeah. I would address it instantly. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Um, so you're located in Bucharest, Romania. Um, I'd love to hear a little bit about the data science, engineering, and tech scene there and uh, in, in Eastern Europe. Yeah, so I, I think this goes for all former communist countries. There was this uh, this uh, culture of engineering in different mm. forms. And not, not uncoincidentally, both my parents are engineers. Oh, okay. Um, it, you got you had like countries where they were very well respected, and a lot mm-hmm. of the social value and emphasis was put on just engineering in whatever form. Um, and part of that culture has has stayed, and I think it's it plays to a great advantage for most of Eastern Europe, mm-hmm. uh, where for a brief moment in time it was like at the intersection of great, um, great uh, engineering schools and great engineering minds and talents like it i have to tell like we we took math very seriously in school like <laughs> it, it wasn't like okay some people are good and some people are bad at it no like uh, almost as as a cultural level like it being good at math meant meant you were smart and not being good at math math meant it you weren't smart well that's horrible for your self-esteem yeah not good for my self-esteem <laughs> <laughs> no and then and, and, and the and a very faulty idea, but it, it does uh, it does breed good uh, engineering talent and mm-hmm. good engineering mindset. It's there's some sort of uh, pride into like participating into contests and being at hackathons and mm-hmm. um, and us in in Romania, I think it it's shaped it it shapes into like a regional leader uh, mm-hmm. because uh, we have uh, we have a company. It's called uh, UiPath. It went public, I think, a year and a half ago. Um, and it's this amazing story. They were for a bunch of years, they were the highest growing company in history. It went in wow. like seven years from zero to like 35 billions when, when they went to IPO. Yeah, yeah wow. it's some crazy story. And being in like a small city where, uh, where they had no prior success at that level mm-hmm. um, and see them grow instantly and, and uh, achieve that level of success. And now a lot of employees from there uh, our angel investors and they're starting new companies and we have some uh, other uh, unicorns in the making uh, coming afterwards. We have the VC scene being developed and pair that with good technical talent. Mm-hmm. Our challenge is mostly in like the commercial roles like sales and marketing uh, mm-hmm. where uh, 
again as a cultural thing it's sort of been disregarded for for a long time hmm. um but now i think i think we're learning and we're we're uh, on a great path um and we have a, another advantage that is uh, the fact that most of the people speak english at a very good level that's mm, again it's a lot yeah. of emphasis put put on that in school um so you put all of these together now okay we're the the resources are not as as inexpensive as they used to be of course um, right. But then I think we're all learning as an ecosystem, and I've I've worked with a lot of teams in in a lot of countries, um, and I I do think that that our our schools do a very very good job at at training engineers. That's great. Um, you mentioned you've worked with a lot of people in many different countries, um, so. You guys founded Solidify in 2018. This was before COVID, before the work from home culture was, was uh, you know, kind of ubiquitous. Um, how has COVID and the work from home culture aided or hindered your work um, as an internationally distributed firm? Um, yeah, so I, I think this is the part where, where I lose your respect, Melody. <laughs> Uh-oh. <laughs> um, because I, uh, like a... I and 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 at least uh, a big part of our team uh, is is very much against uh, working from home in startups. Okay. As working from home in startups as like a general rule. Uh-huh. Um, it's not, of course, we're not uh, like um, I don't know when this will be released, but today there's uh, this uh, there's a bunch of articles about Elon Musk saying if you don't spend at least no, I I think that's. In general, as a framework, those kinds of statements, I think you're you're just better off not making them. Right, right. So yeah, be careful. This will go live. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's okay. We I got a good relationship with Elon. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, no, but uh, so definitely not at that level uh, where you have to like measure the number of hours. But uh, what what we tell to our employees uh, at the interviews, we say we for the first three months you're expected to be like two or three days. There's a mm -hmm. major cultural component. There's uh, a lot of relationships uh, in in a startup. It's much more personal than at a large company. Um, and there's a lot of unsolved problems that we need to, like, uh, no one has the solution to them. If we had the recipe, we would give it, but we we have a lot more problems than solutions in what we're developing. Mm -hmm. So a lot of collaboration is needed. Um, um, there's, uh, obviously, it's it's hybrid. It's not 100% um, from the office, mm -hmm. but we do try to get together for like two or three days uh, a month. So are most of your employees then um, located in Bucharest? The other teammate that I met, of course, is in the United States. So that's why I was Okay, uh, so now wondering. I cannot say that we're all in Bucharest. <laughs> um, Just most most of you, though. That's interesting. <laughs> um, most of it, uh, so the technical team is, uh, is uh, in the office. Uh, okay. The commercial team we're building um, internationally. Um, mm -hmm. We will try, though, uh, and, and all of the team members that are uh, in Canada or the U.S., they've been to Bucharest and we've seen each other face to face. And it actually, it helped a lot. Wow, cool. Um, so I'll, I'll even give you an example. Like we have a, we have a colleague who's uh, been working with us for nine months. And I thought he's all just like this always task oriented, very uh, dedicated, but very, very... Uh, like all very into making serious work and mm -hmm. not doing any fluff talk, not joking. Like, and then we meet in person, like he's completely different from, 
well i thought he is like for mm -hmm. after working with him nine months because you, you like you, you set up a call and the goal of this call is to discuss this client or this problem or this development right. and yeah you have some fluff talk like how's your day and how's your coffee uh, and you have one-on-ones, but it's not the same, like going yeah. out for a beer with someone and having no agenda. Um, I, I think it matters a lot. And the, the, the younger you are as a company and you're trying to shape mindsets and hmm. uh, the trust component is really important. You have fires going on all the time. Um, mm -hmm. And trust is a impor very important factor. And then I think it's really hard to innovate when, when you're by yourself in a, in a bedroom. Um, I think it helps like having like focus days for, 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 of course. Cool. That's yeah. I mean, this is a big debate going on right now. Um, so, uh, I want to turn back to AI, uh, where do you see AI today? Um, again, dispelling some of those, uh, fantasies that we have about how advanced we are. Um, but also with an eye at looking at where the industry is, going and what areas you think are um, on the brink of making a, a leap forward? Yeah, that, that's a great question. So I, I think uh, most of the, if, if you are to find some way to put together all the decisions that are made in a given month in the world, I would say that most of them are deterministic. If you have enough data, you kind of know what the decision will be. And especially if you're a company and the larger you are, the more there's at stake, more and more of your decisions, you, you actually want them to be deterministic. Like you want, okay, you haven't given the same client, you kind of want to price the same in the same mm -hmm. conditions. Uh, and of course, there's also an ethical component of that. So you really want to price the same. Um, and I think we're very far away from achieving that. I think now for the first time we have the tools in place. So you, uh, you technically can for the first time. Uh, but I, I think we're still like a decade or two away from making the decisions that need to be deterministic, making them deterministic and putting people out of the boring research jobs or uh, the boring doing the same thing 30 times a day. Uh, type of jobs and like uh, let letting them use their creativity and decision making process on like the twenty percent hardest decisions mm -hmm. with reliable enough systems to flag those decisions that need to be uh, taken care of. Um, and I think a lot of this innovation, um, almost paradoxically, it's happening in financial services. Mm. Um, and I say almost paradoxically because you don't like the regulated industries are not necessarily champions of like speed or innovation. Right. Uh, but I think with everything changing today and uh, maybe even sometimes even pressure from startups, um, I, I see that that changing and, and them employing um, a lot more data and their decisions and using a lot more cutting edge technologies and modern frameworks. Um, the second, the second um, sort of industry that we see changing a lot is is the supply chain or anything related to supply chain. Where there's been like maybe ten years ago, there was like no technology whatsoever, and now almost right. all the large warehouses are automated, and all the stocks are like kept in Snowflake and so on. <laughs> uh, so I, I think there's a lot of 
there's we we're now past the initial step where we kind of need to figure out what the infrastructure needs to be and that's always the hardest like mm-hmm. building the railroad yeah then you can focus on building a faster train or coming up with better fuel mm-hmm. um but i i think we're right at that point so um everything that's in front of us is really exciting and and i like to think of like data as as the fuel absolutely um so this is always my my last question. It's a little goofy. You can take it any way you want. Um, but if you were to write a sci-fi novel about the year 2042, what does the world look like and have the robots taken over? Um, the robots haven't taken over. Uh, the robots are Ooh. nowhere near. I'm <laughs> hoping that um, there's less fear uh, mm-hmm. about the robots taking over. So I, I'm... Hoping like the conversations about robots taking over, it's sort of the 2020 <laughs> decade, and then we sort of leave it aside. Uh-huh. Um, I think a lot of that comes like is built on top of a lot of false information about the state of current AI and where it's going, and um, it's it's unnecessary panic. Um, mm-hmm. It's it's anyone's like guess of where this would go, and it's really hard to make predictions. Like how hard does it accelerate? Um, my personal, I'm, I'm on, I'm on the camp of we have nothing to worry about, and uh, there are multiple ways to destroy the world. Some have been available for centuries. We haven't pushed that button yet. Um, I, I, I think we need to use caution. So I'm, I'm, for example, uh, and I hope in 2042 that this is is a is a reality. If I were to bet, I would say it it will be. Um, I, I'm, for example, I'm of the thinking that. AI models need to be AI models need to be open source. Mm. Um, at least the critical component or or what they're optimizing for, I think that should be available uh, and easy to. So we have the concept of audit with mm. like okay we 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 can assume we can trust the balance sheet you're sending over mm-hmm. because there's a concept of audit and I think the same works in something that's a lot more powerful like using tech at scale. Um, I think there should be the equivalent of an audit Um, as it's starting to happen in security and privacy problems. I think we should have the same with with AI and the sooner the better. I think there's nothing to hide. Yeah, I I love that idea. Um, And I hope that that uh, continues to develop, especially as um, I think that'll help combat some of the fear um, because now there are models that are um, used for our financial data, for our health data, um, and having that, um, I, I, I just think black box models are are going to be the way of the past, and we have to be able to to um, gaze into the systems that are, you know, determining big big decisions in our lives. I think there's a lot of people looking forward to a day when they open the fridge and the fridge tells them based on how they slept what to eat for breakfast <laughs> to have a better day. Yeah. I think that's something to get excited by. Mm-hmm. Um, but it has the implications like we really need to know what the fridge is thinking to some extent. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> um, well, that's great. Thank you so much. Um, let's wrap up with a couple of calls to action. Um, anything you want to say, how people can reach out, learn more about you? Yeah, sure. So if you if you have the problem of outdated information on small businesses in depth, uh, just reach out to our team or myself. I'm very active on LinkedIn or visit our website, solidify.com. And we do do free datasets. 
Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Florin. Thanks for tuning in. We make this program for listeners like you. So if you enjoyed this episode, share it with your community, write a review or drop us five stars. Every little bit helps spread the word. See you next time.